it is one of those opportunities. Um, and I, I want to suggest that particularly for, for folks who may be a little newer to our congregation. You may be hearing some things about the Bible and the nature of the Bible that you've not heard before. It could be uh, that this whole exploration last week and this week into this phrase, the oracles of God, the words of God, uh, may raise some questions it, in 30-plus years of history. Um, I can tell you that, that uh, understanding, affirming that the 66 books, the 39 in the old and the 27 in the new, the 66 books of the Bible, affirming that this is the word of God, that it is the final rule in all matters of faith and practice. It is the mind of God, the wisdom of God, the purposes of God for the people of God. Making that kind of an affirmation, particularly in our culture, in our day and time, raises questions. And I I just want to recognize that and tell you that tonight is an opportunity to talk about it, to raise those questions, to ask those questions. Um, I'm going to be here, and I hope somebody else will be too. So, I encourage you to come as we, as we think about this. And as you'll hear me say, these are incredibly important things. They've always been important, but they're, they're incredibly important in a time like this, as you'll see, when uh, affirmations, convictions about truth with a capital T are very hard to find. So with that uh, sort of in your ears, let me just read these first couple of verses and we'll pray and then we'll unpack uh, this, this first couple of verses just a little bit more. Paul Writing to the Romans says, then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision much in every way? To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles, the words of God. Let's pray. Lord, these words are your words. Please be with us as we think about them, reflect upon them, and as we seek in these few minutes, to work out the implications of of what is a staggeringly wonderful and good piece of news for us. Lord, grant us your spirit to these ends, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We're we're making our way through uh, Paul's letter to the Romans. We've come to chapter 3, and basically what he's doing in these first couple of chapters is seeking to persuade his listeners, people who are living in Rome, Real place, real time, real people. The gospel has gotten to Rome. Churches have been planted in Rome. People have been converted. They've been gathered into these churches. And Paul is writing to these churches, probably plural, writing to these Christians in Rome. And these congregations are made up both of Jews and Gentiles. And the Jews um, are a bit staggered by what they've been hearing Paul say because what Paul has been saying is that everybody, Jew, Gentile alike, We all have the same problem. The Jews, um, rightly in certain respects, saw themselves as different. Um, And Paul is mindful of that. Here, he says there are advantages. In chapter 9 of this letter, he says there are great advantages to being Jewish. They they were. There were differences. But But the point at which Jew and Gentile together are alike, Paul summarizes in verse 9 and following, The point at which Jew and Gentile are alike is that they are all under sin, under its power, under its bondage, exposed to the judgment that comes because of it. Paul is responding to the to the Jewish listeners. He's anticipating their questions, and he's simply saying to them, the ground is absolutely flat and level before the presence of a holy God. All sin, all unrighteousness, 
will be dealt with, whether you find it in a Gentile or in a Jew. And as I said last week and belabored this, because I just feel the need to do this every once in a while, if God is really good, he's got to care about what isn't good. If he doesn't care about what isn't good, he isn't good, right? I mean, it's just, I don't know. It's kind of a simple math to me. I'm a simple guy. If God is really good, that means he's just. If he's really just, then he's going to deal with all injustice. And that's the problem. That's the problem. And Paul is simply arguing that Jew and Gentile alike are exposed to God's righteous wrath, his judgment against sin. Paul says four times in chapter 2 that there is a day which is coming, a day of judgment. And on that day, all sin, all unrighteousness will be judged. Now, I just want to point this out to you too. In the past, there, there has been this attempt made to sort of pit the Apostle Paul, the Pharisee, the uh, sort of unreconstructed, severe legalist. There's been an attempt made to pit Paul against Jesus and to suggest that Jesus is the one who is merciful and loving and compassionate and kind and forgiving. Paul is the one who has distorted the message of Jesus and has become this sort of re, uh, reincarnated, if you will, sort of revisioned Pharisee who's concerned about law and judgment and everything else. Well, if you read Matthew 24 and 25, Uh, you will see very, very clearly that the very things that Paul is talking about here, Jesus talked about himself. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus tells us that there is a day of judgment which is coming. And so Jew and Gentile alike, we're all in this same place. We're all exposed to this judgment that is coming. We all have need of a redeemer and redemption. We all have need of deliverance and a deliverer. And in the course of unfolding this argument, Paul comes to another question that he anticipates. The Jews will ask, so what is the difference then? If we're all stuck in the same boat, what advantage? That's the question he raises. He anticipates it in the, in the, in the minds of those who will be listening to this letter read. What is the advantage of the Jew? And again, in chapter 9, he's going to mention that there are a bunch of advantages. But the advantage that stands at the head of the class, if you will, at the top of the heap, the advantage from which all of the other advantages derive, the advantage without which there are no other advantages, the principal chief first advantage is that the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, the words of God. That's what it is literally, the words of God. And what Paul has in mind, as we saw last week, what Paul has in mind is the 39 books of the Old Testament. He has in mind Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and the Psalms and Isaiah and Malachi, all of the wisdom. He has in view those 39 books. And we talked about the fact that those books originate. This is some of what I want to talk about in greater detail tonight. They originate with God. They are inspired. They are breathed out by God. And God superintends what we call organic inspiration using human agents to convey and communicate his word to his people for their good. And having inspired it, having breathed it out in an organic way using human agents, it becomes inscripturated. There are three words here. I'm not going to take time with them, but inspiration, inscripturation, and preservation. 
All three of those things are going on. God inspires and breathes out his word. It is inscripturated. And then God, in kindness by his wonderful providence, preserves what has been breathed out, what has been inscripturated. He preserves it for subsequent generations. So that what we have here, 66 books, this is what God wants us to know about himself, about ourselves, about the world in which we live, okay? Now, what are the implications of this? Let's work this out a bit because there are significant implications here. Let me give you just four of them, kind of quickly. Four implications. First one may be self-evident, may seem obvious. The first of those implications is simply that God speaks. God speaks. God God speaks. God makes himself known. He reveals himself. He doesn't stay hidden in the shadows. He doesn't remain at remove from us. He doesn't leave us guessing about himself. He's revealed himself. He's made himself known. That is what the Bible is. It is God's self-disclosure. Someone has called the Bible the autobiography of God. I don't know how accurate that is, but it's certainly helpful in gaining some sense of what it is that the Bible is. It is God disclosing himself, speaking, revealing himself. Now, human beings are remarkably curious creatures, okay? God made us that way. We're remarkably curious creatures. And God has made us to be curious creatures so that we might explore the world in which we live, so that we might marvel at the world in which we live, so that we might engage the world in which we live, the reality that we find ourselves in the midst of. Paul alludes to this in a sermon that he preached in Athens, Acts chapter 17, verses 26 and 27. Paul is alluding to this this incurable curiosity that human beings have. He writes, from one man, God made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole world. And he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. And listen to why God did this. Why did God create the world? Why did God create all of the nations of the world from one man? Why does God set the limits of their habitations, set the time frames within which they should live, the exact places where they should live? Why did God do that? God did this so that men would seek after him. So that men would seek after him. See, incurably curious, so that they would seek after him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. I heard a really um, interesting little piece on NPR this last week, for those of you who listen to National Public Radio. It was about ants. Did anybody catch this thing? These guys, you know, you wonder who pays for these things. I find it fascinating that people actually put up money for this kind of stuff. But these guys wanted, they studied ants because they wanted to know how an ant could be lost in a sandstorm, having left home to go to a food source and then make its way back home. It isn't by scent. The wind would blow the scent away. How do they do it? Well, they've determined through a series of experiments that ants actually have little pedometers in their brains. They count their steps. 
The, the, the way they know this, again, this is crazy, isn't it? This is crazy. They took ants. They took a bunch of ants. They, they, they gave them a food source, and then they watched them march to the food source. Well, before they went back home, they divided the group of ants. You wonder, where, this is, where is this guy going with this? They divided the group of ants into three groups. They found some, some really, you know, infinitesimally small thing, and they attached it to the leg of the ant. That's group one. Then group two, this is kind of cruel and unusual punishment, but they snipped off a portion of the legs of the other ant, and then they left the third group the same, okay? You're going to love this. The group with the legs too long counted the same number of steps, but because their stride was greater, they went past home. Ah. The other group counted the same number of steps, but because their stride was shorter, they never got there. But the test group, the control group, got back home. Now, you say, well, who pays for th- I-, I was initially, my first inclination was to think, who, who's the lunatic who pays for this stuff? But then I thought, no, 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 no. You know, you know what that is supposed to do? We are incurably curious about the world in which we live. But here is where those studies are supposed to lead us. Here's where the exploration and investigation of ants is to lead us. It's to lead us not to the question, how many steps does it take for an ant to get from place A to place B? Ultimately, the question that an exploration and investigation like that is to lead us to is the question, why are there ants at all? And what is it that differentiates ants from everything else? And those are questions of an ultimate kind. And you are surrounded by voices, a cacophony of voices providing answers, giving answers to those questions. Why are there ants at all? What is it that differentiates an ant from some other living organism? What is it that distinguishes a living organism from a non-living organism? There is the observable stuff. There's the stuff you can see, the stuff you can measure. You can measure steps. But you know, somebody from outside your experience with a bigger brain than yours has got to speak into your world to give you an answer to the ultimate question, why are there ants at all? That's what we're saying is happening here. We're saying somebody outside our own heads, somebody outside our own experience is speaking into our world. And that's particularly critical because questions of truth and spirituality, religion, everything else have been so personalized, so individualized, so subjectivized that what I perceive to be true has no application or implication for you. What you perceive to be true has no application or implication for me. Truth is true for me. Truth is true for me. I've suggested this to you before, but let me say it again. And when your perception of what is true collides with my perception of what is true, where is the final arbiter? Who's going to be the judge? And what ends up being the final judge is power. It's power. Raw, naked power. Road to church this morning with Ivan. Ivan is from Venezuela. 
The president of Venezuela is simply taking over everything. Why? Because he can. Because he has power to do it. If there is not a voice outside your head and mine, a voice outside my experience, a voice outside my subjective apprehension of the world around me, if there is not a voice outside my head speaking into this world, you you begin to see what happens. And this is what we're saying. We're saying God has spoken. He speaks. He doesn't remain hidden in the shadows. He speaks. He speaks clearly. He guarantees that what he speaks is preserved for the benefit of anybody who would take the time to listen, to read, to hear it, to investigate it. He speaks. And the second thing that flows out of this, and all of this I'm absolutely convinced, is Paul's in Paul's mind, as he, as he writes, as he thinks, the second thing that flows out of this is that when God speaks, he speaks truthfully. He speaks truthfully. His voice isn't just another voice. His voice isn't just the loudest voice. His voice is the true voice. I don't, just, I don't need, friends, I don't need just another opinion. Remember years ago, Barb, and I may have shared this with you before. Barb and I were living in Northern Virginia, and in the copy, a weekend copy on the editorial page of the Washington Post, we're living in Northern Virginia. There was a there was a cartoon character, the little squat cartoon character with the bulbous nose, Iggy. Right. And on the editorial page, I mean, it's so significant. That's a long time ago. This is 25, almost 30 years ago. But little Iggy is standing between two pedestals, right? Two columns, you know, those Greek kind of Corinthian things, right? And on top of each of those columns is the bust of a philosopher. And little Iggy is standing between these two columns and he's looking up at these two philosophers and he's asking the question, which one of you will set me free? See, I don't, I don't need just another voice. I don't need another opinion. I need someone to speak, yes, but I need someone to speak into this cacophony of voices and speak the truth. Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. I need freedom. I need truth, truth that is real, substantial truth. And God, when he speaks, tells the truth. It's a painting. It, it, it's just captivated me. It's haunting, haunting painting. It's captivated me since I first saw it over 30 years ago as a very young Christian. It's by the Norwegian artist Edvard Munch. It's entitled The Scream. Maybe you know this painting. It's, uh, it's the figure, the rather distorted and ghost-like image of a person. And this person's face, this, this sort of ghost-like figure of a face is frozen in this scream, this horrified scream. I, I don't know about any other art historian's assessment or an analysis of this particular painting. But I do remember reading one art historian's assessment of this 
particular painting and what he believed that Munch, and I guess he'd read his diaries and biographies and things about him, he was persuaded that what Munch was seeking to convey by this particular image, this ghost-like, ghastly, horrified expression on this face, what he was seeking to convey is the inevitable response that there is when the universe is silent. Interestingly, on a lake behind this figure are two boats, and on those two boats are three crosses, and this per- three masts, and this particular art historian sees in those masts three crosses that are empty, have been empty, and will always be empty because there is no God at home to commission his son to come into the world to disclose the truth about the one true God who exists, to die to set people free from this horrific silence that swallows them up. God speaks, and when he speaks, he speaks the truth, and the truth that he speaks sets us free. Now, that's significant for you and me. And I don't mean to to get personal here, but it's very significant that God speaks, and it's very significant that when God speaks, he speaks the truth. It's very significant, these matters of inspiration and inscripturation and God's preserving what was inspired and then inscripturated. And it's significant for a couple of reasons related to you and me. We are both finite and flawed. We are both of those things. We are finite and we are flawed. You are both things. Don't take it personally. It's true of me too. You're finite and you're flawed. You don't know everything that there is to know. The the knowledge of God is a fascinating thing. I can point you to a little paragraph in Charles Hodges' Systematic Theology in which he talks about knowledge. If you're interested, just see me afterward. Knowledge is a fascinating thing because true knowledge is not only, it's not only like true things, but it's true things in right relationship to each other, in right proportion, if you will. It isn't just, I, I sometimes, we, we all, we're all fighting this inclination to have what I call a Popeye theology. You remember Popeye, the cartoon character who's, he'd eat a can of spinach and his arm get real big and he could whack Brutus and knock, knock him to the next planet. You remember Popeye and olive oil, olive oil? Well, you remember Popeye, his forearm got massive. It got huge and he could kill things with his massive forearm. The rest of his body was a stick figure. You remember it remained atrophied and, and not even human. We can end up with theologies like that, right? We can end up with massive forearms with which we kill people right? But what we call the whole counsel of God, everything in proper relation to each other ends up being atrophied and scaled down. You understand what I'm saying? Knowledge isn't just knowing some things, it's knowing things in proper relation and proper proportion to each other. You know some things, I know some things, I don't know everything there is to know. I just don't. I'm finite. You don't either. There are things that you don't know that would be well for you to know. There are things that I don't know that would be well for me. It would be good for me to know these things. 
Right? That's what it means to be finite. That's why we continue to study. That's why there's a wonderful collect in the Book of Common Prayer. It's for, it's for the Sunday closest to November 13th in the book. And the collect is, the prayer is, God, you've given us the scriptures. Help us so to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them that in our living we may show forth the glories of Jesus. Right? I, I said last week, Again, please don't take it. Don't come here to learn your Bibles. I mean, I want you to come here to learn your Bibles, but I want you to be reading your Bible Monday through Saturday so that when you come here, we've got some common grist in the mill. We can work together. You're finite. I'm finite. But even more significantly, not only do I need to continue to learn, continue to grow, continue to seek to get things in proper relation to one another, I am flawed. I'm flawed. You're flawed. Can anyone here honestly say he's never made a mistake? Can anyone here honestly say I've never, I've met people, I've met people who suggest They've never been wrong. They never apologize. They never humble themselves. They never acknowledge that they don't know. But can anyone honestly say, I've never been wrong? I don't think so. I don't think so. You've been wrong. I've been wrong. There are things about which I am fairly certain I am wrong. I would like to believe that if those things are pointed out to me, I would correct them. I would admit it and say, I'm wrong. The problem with being flawed is I can't see my flaws. That's part of the problem with being flawed. We are both finite and we are flawed. And so when God speaks this word of truth, it's an incredibly good thing that he does because he knows more than I know. He knows everything that he knows, which is everything, in proper relationship, you understand, in proper harmony and balance. And he's never been wrong about anything. And I need somebody outside my own head, outside my own subjective experience to speak into my world, to speak into the noise that is around me, and to speak truthfully so that I can know the truth, so that I can correct myself, so that I can be corrected. That, my friends, is what we have in the oracles of God. That is what we have in the words of God. That is what we have in the 66 books, 39 and 27, the Old and the New Testaments. We have God who is perfect, speaking into our world, telling us what we need to know, not all that we would like to know. There is a bunch of stuff I'd really like to know. And you too. But this God who is wise, whose wisdom surpasses my ability to comprehend, this God speaks into my world what I need to know about him, about the world that he has made, about myself, and about what he is doing in this world, which is what Advent is all about. What he is doing in this world. And how he seeks to enlist us in his purposes for the renovation and the restoration, the liberation of the world in which we find ourselves. 
which final liberation will come at the second advent. Now, again, if God is really God, if he is good, then he will speak, and when he speaks, he will speak the truth. What is your understanding of God? If he is God, if he is really there, he must be good, and if good, he will speak out of his goodness, and when he speaks, he will speak the truth. And that leads then to the third thing, which is an an inevitable outworking of this. It's a necessary outworking of this. What this means is that there are true things that I can know about the God who is really there. Now, that may seem self-evident, but folks, I want to suggest to you again that you're surrounded and tragically surrounded not only outside the church, but in too many places inside the church you will hear voices questioning whether or not what we have in these 66 books really does disclose to us true things about the God who is really there. You'll hear that questioned. But I want to suggest to you that if God is good, he will speak, and that when he speaks, he will speak the truth, and so I can know true things about him. Not everything, not everything. He's infinite. There is a lot of mystery, a lot of mystery when it comes to the person of God and how he exists as a triune God, Father and Son and Holy Spirit, how the baby in the manger can be God incarnate. Ah, Can't help you. But I can know true things about God. I grew up near Chicago. I know some things about Chicago, Illinois. I know where Lakeshore Drive is. I know where Hyde Park is. I know where the University of Chicago is. I know where Roosevelt Theater is. I know some true things about Chicago, Illinois. I may know more than you know about Chicago, Illinois. I don't know more than Glenn Gravengood knows about Chicago because he lived there. The point is that neither Glenn nor I is omniscient when it comes to Chicago. I also know the Cubs haven't won a pennant since 1909. (laughs) Just because I can't or don't know everything does not mean that I don't know truly the things that I do know. And these 66 books, 39 and 27, Tell me true things about the God who is really there, what he is like, this world that he has made, and what he is doing right now. That's what Paul has in view when he refers to these oracles of God. And then here's the final thing. God speaks. He speaks truly because he speaks truly. I can know true things about him. Here's the final thing, and this is the final wonder. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Virtually every religion has a book. But folks, the really unique, glorious, wonderful, beyond speaking thing about Christianity is that God didn't simply speak from out of this world into this world, telling us true things about himself, about this world, about us in it, and about his purposes. He didn't just do that. He came. He came into the world. Hebrews chapter 1, 
In the past, God spoke to our fathers at many times and in many ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, in his son, through his son. John 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. See, this this is what is so remarkably glorious and wonderful about the Christian faith. I've heard other people say it. It needs to be said again and again and again. Every other religion of the world, God remains removed. And the key to getting to God is what you do, what you think, what you say. It's all up to you. The remarkably unique, refreshing, distinctive thing about Christianity is that God doesn't remain at remove. He doesn't remain at a distance. He comes into the world to do for us what we are powerless to do for ourselves. That's the gospel. That's the glorious good news of the gospel. So God speaks. He speaks truthfully. Because he speaks truthfully, I can know true things about him. But best of all, as a friend of mine puts it, he moved into the neighborhood. You heard me say that he moved into the neighborhood. He has come into our midst as we've confessed. He's come in weakness. He's come understanding us, knowing us, living as we live, suffering as we suffer. And he has gained victory over everything that plagues and troubles us and is now the risen and ascended king of glory. So God speaks, speaks the truth. I can know true things about him. And we're in this season to celebrate that the word has become flesh and dwelt among us and we've beheld his glory. Let's pray together. Lord, encourage the hearts of your people with these things. Thank you that you've not remained silent. Thank you that the horror of a silent universe has passed and the voice of the creator God has spoken. And indeed, the word has become flesh and dwelt among us. And thank you, O God, that in grace and mercy, you've preserved a record of your speaking and you're acting for our benefit today. God, have mercy upon us and help each of us to be more diligent in reading, marking, ingesting this truth of your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let me have you stand and we'll sing together number 226. Another carol of anticipation, hymn of anticipation, as with gladness, Men of old, years and years ago, I saw a bumper sticker that said, wise men still seek him. So let me encourage you to be wise people. And let's sing together, as with gladness, men of old, number 226.